1: I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, from BleacherReport.com, and joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm doing all right. Do you think Conor McGregor is listening to this right now? I assume so. Do you think that he's just waiting for us to publish the co-main event podcast so that he can post his tweet saying that he's discovered a cure for cancer or he's going on Walkabout and will never be seen again?
2: You know... When you think about it in that term, where you imagine Conor McGregor with his tweet all written out and his thumb just hovering over the button, I appreciate his commitment to maintaining the pattern of breaking big news after the podcast has come out.
1: I assume he's got it saved in drafts. Yeah. He's just ready to go as soon as this thing drops. He probably has one of his
2: flunkies on hand to tell him, like, let me know when the CME podcast is up so I can go ahead and ruin their world by breaking this news.
1: Yeah, this past week uh, was essentially the ultimate or the culmination, perhaps, if you will, of the Tuesday news curse when uh, we got this thing posted and then immediately Conor McGregor announced his quasi-retirement. It's it's so powerful, I guess you could say, that... uh, Still developing, still ongoing situation.
2: I assume it'll just keep leapfrogging to every Tuesday. That's when the every development in this story will be made. Until the last Tuesday when the breaking news story is that the world is ending.
1: And we just have to go from there, I guess. Yeah. Well,
2: we'll, don't worry, we'll cover the world ending in our, our Breakfast of Champions newsletter.
1: Well, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you once again by Fulton and Rourke. This week, Fulton & Rourke wants to tell you guys about their exclusive mailing list. If you've bought some Fulton & Rourke products and you liked them, or maybe you haven't bought them yet, but you're curious, and you're sitting at home wondering what other secrets to men's grooming and overall look-and-fly the wizards at Fulton & Rourke can share with you, well... Only one way to find out. That's right, Chad. If you haven't been to FultonandRourke.com yet, when you
2: navigate there for the first time, you'll see a pop-up giving you the opportunity to sign up for the newsletter. Now, if you have been to FultonandRourke.com but neglected to sign up, you can just scroll all the way to the bottom of the site, and there's a link down there that will let you sign up as well. Once you do that, your life will be a dream.
1: One thing I wonder, though, is it really easy to unsubscribe? They say it is. Will they sell my email address to weird Russian pornographers? They say they won't. Hmm. Sounds like they've got all their bases covered. You heard it here first, folks. Just go to FultonandRourke.com. Remember, that's R-O-A-R-K. And sign up. Sounds like a no-lose situation. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, okay, what the actual fuck is going on between Conor McGregor, the UFC... Nate Diaz and UFC 200 because man fuck. And in round number 2, John Jones at UFC 197, good or not good. And in round number 3, has Demetrius Johnson finally found the right spot to succeed just as he runs out of dudes to fight. All that plus are you fucking kidding me just saying stuff and the triumphant return of Sir Nigel Longstock for a little bit of master tweet theater. But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Well, Ben, we got a ton of listener mail this week uh, on maybe sort of an, uh, an under-the-radar topic, and that being Anthony Pettis' Lost Edson Barbosa this past weekend at huh. UFC 197. Huh, that's the one everyone wants to write about. Huh? I assume it's people trying to game the system. Uh, you know, people can probably figure out what the topics of our three rounds are going to be. So you've got some uh, opportunistic people out there trying to get their emails read trying to outthink us, trying to run an end run around what they think is going to happen.
2: And kind of succeeding, I guess. Yeah, absolutely When you explain succeeding. it, it sounds like a brilliant strategy. So I'm going
1: to read four emails that we got about Anthony Pettis that I think touch all the bases, kind of sum it all up about Anthony Pettis. The first one this week comes to us from Reese Burgess, and he writes, Does Pretty Tony Pettis have a guy to help him with this three-fight skid?
2: Okay, somebody had to go there.
1: Somebody had to do that and Then we got this one from The Cheeseburger Walrus. Oh, yes. Of course. Which I have to assume is is an assumed name.
2: Yeah. He he or she,
1: he or she writes, The Wheaties box curse strikes again. Let's all take a moment and say a prayer for our boy, Pretty Tony Pettis. I know he's fought top guys, but I feel like a three-fight losing streak may spell the end of his title hopes. Still a lot of fun at Lightweight for him. Still a lot of fun fights at Lightweight for him. But overall thoughts on Pettis' performance versus Barboza and where the fuck does he go from here?
2: And isn't that just like a cheeseburger, walrus, all superstitious and whatnot?
1: Next one from Josh Montgomery who wrote, Anthony Pettis is now on a three-fight losing streak and 5-4 and overall in the UFC. Jeez, is he really 5-4 and overall in the UFC? Because that ain't good.
2: No, that that sounds worse than I thought it was.
1: I guess we'll have to take Josh Montgomery's word for it because God knows we're not going to look it up. You know that line in Die Hard when Sergeant Powell says, The FBI is here. They have the universal terrorist playbook and they are running it step by step. Well, the universal losing fighter playbook usually consists of number one, camp jumping, and number two, weight class change. So, since pretty tony half-ass camp jumped to Jackson's for part of this camp, is the next step for him to fight at 145 pounds? And the final question from Richard Saunders, who writes... What the shizzle is going on with Anthony Pettis? Although I do ho- hate to suggest fighters cut weight, he looks a bit undersized at 155. Do you think it might be time to see featherweight showtime? So you can see those last two somewhat almost conflicting. That's right. Almost conflicting opinions there. Uh What we do know for sure is that uh, co-main event podcast spirit animal, Anthony Pettis, is on a tough run. In the UFC's lightweight division. Uh, it seems like a lifetime ago that this guy was on that Wheaties box, that he was considered largely, uh, you know, the, the new hotness at yeah. 155 pounds. He was Mr. Corn Nuts back then. And it seemed like, yeah, there was life-size corn nut cutouts of this guy in gas stations across America, just waiting for Sage Northcutt to take pictures with him. Uh, <laughs> it seemed like the UFC PR machine was just waiting to, to rocket Anthony Pettis into the stratosphere. And then, you know, even though he had already missed a lot of time with injuries, uh, he won the title from, uh, Benson Henderson, uh, and then beat Gilbert Melendez, but has since then gone on, uh, a tough run. And the guy's still very young, although a lot of miles on that body in MMA. And so uh, you, you can't slam the door on a guy like Anthony Pettis, who still has all the talent and, and in the world and is still, I believe, just like 29 years old. But uh, this three-fight losing streak and dropping this one to Edson Barboza it's at least going to get him out of the top 10 for the time being. And in a division like Lightweight, uh, the road back will be arduous, to say the least.
2: Yeah, and if you wanted to cut him some slack in this three-fight losing streak, there's room to do that. Because the first fight he lost of it was to the current champion, Rafael Dos Anjos. And as you'll recall, that was one where he just got popped in his eye pretty much immediately. And then fought the rest of the fight basically with vision in one eye. Still went to the decision, proved his, his tough guy credentials on that one. But lost, very clearly lost. Uh And then the second one was that split decision to Eddie Alvarez, which very easily could have gone his way. Uh And now this one to Edson Barboza, he definitely lost that one. You know, and took some monster shots in this one and hung right in there. It wasn't like he looked like he was wearing down or like he was showing the miles on his body or anything. Still looked tough, but also just couldn't ever really get started against Edson Barboza. So I guess what I'm saying is three-fight losing streak that could easily be a one-and-two stretch with one of the two coming against possibly the world's current best lightweight. So it's not like he's falling out the bottom of the UFC at this point.
1: No, it's not like he's, he's on the verge of being cut or anything like that, but I would contend that this loss to Edson Barboza, uh, UFC 197 is the, is the worst one yet. You know, this one, like the emailer said, kind of seemed like Anthony Pettis pulled out all the stops for this one, went down to Greg Jackson's academy and, and trained there for a while. And, and, uh, uh, it seemed like he was coming. He didn't do any media, I don't think, leading up to this fight. I don't know if that was just because he didn't make the, you know being the third fight from the top of the card he maybe he didn't make the the UFC media rotation uh but also i don't know maybe it also could have been a, a conscious decision by him to just focus on the fighting leading up to this and no you can't
2: do that they'll pull you off the fight card if you try to do that
1: (laughs) yeah exactly uh and then he comes out and kind of lays an egg against edson barboza a guy who was coming off his own loss to tony ferguson uh and had lost to michael johnson previous to that in 2015 only with his last wins before this were uh evan dunham bobby green and paul felder so uh
2: and the felder one he was kind of lucky to scrape by with
1: so you know I don't know that anyone, Edson Barboza is a serious dude and an exciting fighter, but I don't think anyone is like, oh man, Edson Barboza, like, it's only a matter of time before he gets his chance with the gold.
2: This is, though, kind of as good as Edson Barboza has looked in recent memory, so let's give him that. And it did seem like the fight played out pretty much exactly the way Edson Barboza would want it to. Uh, Pettis made a couple attempts to get him to the ground, couldn't really... Get much going there that way, and so ended up with a in a kickboxing match with Barboza. And every time he'd try to set up and start to launch his own offense, uh, Barboza was disrupting him. It was just thwacking those kicks to his body, his legs. You could see Edson the imprint of Edson Barboza's toes on him, man. Uh, but I'm again, I, I'm leery of the quick fix. Hey, drop a weight class, and that'll solve your right, problems. Yeah. I just don't think it will. Uh, and I, I don't feel like he usually looks terribly undersized at at 155 pounds that doesn't usually seem like it's his big problem and if we're gonna start throwing around that one it wasn't that long ago that we were saying the same thing about Eddie Alvarez right that Eddie Alvarez when he got in there against Donald Cerrone uh, when he first kind of came to the UFC after all that protracted uh, contract negotiation stuff he looked undersized then he gets two split decisions against Gilbert Melendez and Anthony Pettis and now he's you know he's right there so I don't know It, it seems to me like We're just saying the things that we say when a guy has a bunch of losses in a row and we don't necessarily know why. And maybe he doesn't necessarily know why. And these are the easiest things to reach for.
1: Well, I guess if you're Anthony Pettis, the saving grace is that the UFC probably would still really like to promote you. So, you know, another couple wins uh, and maybe you're right back in the mix. Although at this point, man, you don't want to lose another one. You don't want to lose the next one. Uh, next question this week comes from Daniel Yoon. He writes, Just how awesome was Yair Rodriguez's jumping switch roundhouse to the chin for the KO and the win? Yair's unique ability to just pull the trigger and hit high level taekwondo kicks just keeps improving every time we see him fight. Even this, even his after fight interview skills are improving by leaps and bounds. Remember his first interview where he calmly puked in front of Joe Rogan then promptly apologized for it? El Pantera has arrived. Thoughts? Uh I yeah I uh I approve this message. Yeah. That uh, was rad. That was just a rad fight and he's now I think
2: to the point when where people who watch enough UFC to care about who's opening a UFC pay-per-view card mm-hmm. see this matchup and think, "Oh yeah, that's a fight that fits exactly the bill that the UFC likes to use to open the main card, like a really fast-paced exciting bout that's you're probably going to end with somebody knocked out." And he's now it seems like kind of a a reliable dude to deliver some crazy shit.
1: Yeah, and uh you know with this fight going down amid all of the Conor McGregor nonsense that's going on, uh this was a fight where I as I was watching it I kind of felt like hey, you know what? Featherweight's going to be okay no matter what happens. <laughs> yeah. Cuz you got Rodriguez here who's only 23 years old. Uh he's Mexican and you know that the UFC has been trying for a long time to find the key into Latin America. And really wanted that wanted the, the breakout star there to be Cain Velasquez, despite the fact that Cain Velasquez is from America, uh, the United States of America. Uh, and, and Rodriguez seems like a guy who could might be able to do that, man. Like uh, he, his, his fighting style obviously is among the most exciting in the UFC today. He's seven and one. Now he's won all four of his fights in the octagon in a row. And uh, you know, Feely's not a nobody. That's a that's a tough dude who who can give a lot of people trouble. And for Rodriguez to score that highlight reel knockout in the way he did, I think just signals to you that that he's definitely a dude to keep an eye on at 145 pounds. And I would think after this victory uh, is going to you know probably get inside the top ten and probably earn a contender fight in his in his next bout. Somebody you know, not a number one contender bout, but. But somebody who's hanging around in that top ten, you we, would think.
2: You know what I was thinking when I was watching this fight, especially at the point when he goes for what appears to be just like a a pro wrestling style dropkick against Andre Feely, uh, is, listen, you crazy son of a bitch, just going out there and trying whatever. You're going to reach a point in the UFC where somebody is going to try to use that against you, maybe successfully. And then people are going to tell you, "See, you 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 play too much, Yair Rodriguez. You mess around too much, El Pantera." And this is what happens. You got to stop it and and you know bring it bring it back a little bit. And so I want to say preemptively to Yair Ray Rodriguez, you are a crazy son of a bitch, and don't you let them ever take that from you. Not never.
1: Not, actually. I know what I was thinking as this fight was going down, after I thought you know featherweight will be fine no matter what conor mcgregor does was how fun would it be to watch this dude fight conor mcgregor just spinning shit everywhere
2: book it book it for fight pass as a punishment for conor mcgregor uh ufc macau rodriguez mcgregor
1: the next question this week comes from alexander in pa and he writes let's take a moment to talk about robert Whitaker. He was ranked number seven in the UFC official rankings and now has a five fight win streak going on. He beat up Uriah Hall in December and put on a good performance this past weekend. Yet I see no hype from the man. What's really going on? Are we ready? Are we ready to consider the wit taker as a legitimate contender? Uh, I got it. Middleweight. See, Uh, think about that one for a second there, but then, uh, it becomes clear. You know, uh, Robert Whittaker, uh, is, exactly the kind of dude the the middleweight division needs right now because that, that, you know, like light heavyweight and heavyweight middleweight is aging pretty quickly around the top of the top 10. And to have uh Robert Whitaker at 25 years old now to, to be on this five fight win streak uh and, and to be kind of riding high and making his, his presence felt is, is a good thing for 185 pounds. I don't think you're hearing a lot of people talk about him right now, just because this fight with Rafael Natal uh, was not a terrible fight, but was not the kind of fight that was going to leave people talking, uh, especially considering uh, the two guys you had in the main event and the co-main event and considering uh, Yair Rodriguez's jumping knockout and then to consider the little Irish fellow gobbling up all the headlines. Uh, there's not a lot of room, frankly, to talk about Robert Whitaker, who probably does deserve some of our attention. Well, yeah, and especially after this kind of fight, because I thought it was a really good fight, and it was also just a brutal
2: fight on both ends. Where it was just kind of like two guys standing there and thumping each other in the skull over and over again to see whose body could stand up to that longer. And, you know, Rafael Natal's a tough guy, Robert Whitaker's a tough guy, so they seem like they could have just done that for a long time. And so it seemed like a classic example of one of those UFC fights where both dudes are putting themselves through an enormous amount of pain and physical punishment for relatively minor rewards in terms of both money and attention. Because as you said, just with everything else going on, both on this card and just in the landscape in general, hard to stand out for a guy like Robert Whittaker, who's just going to go out there, put on a tough, solid performance, and then just be a kind of nice, regular dude in his post-fight interview. It's it's hard for us to remember that come Monday morning.
1: Next question this week. Last question this week comes to us from Zach, the prosecutor, which I don't know if is his occupation or his nickname.
2: I really hope that it's both.
1: I, I guess that's true. He writes, I kind of just assumed Benson Henderson would roll up to Bellator, hair flowing, toothpick tucked safely in the jawline, and within in a week, he'd be their humble champion. Just me? Question mark. Uh, no, Zach the prosecutor, not just you. And, uh, in retrospect, Ben, after watching Ben, Benson Henderson go make his Bellator debut at Bellator 153 this last Friday in Uncasville, Connecticut, obviously, because that's where all the big fights go. That's right. Uh, two things became immediately clear to me. First of all, Andre Korishkov has two K's in his last name. Korishkov. Which, which we did not get last week while talking about him. Korishkov. And I think at this point, after actually watching the man do the damn thing, he deserves to have us say his name, at least with all of the consonants in there, even if we're not going to actually nail the pronunciation. The second thing that occurred to me was, yeah, Benson Henderson, come over here to Bellator and fight a goddamn giant. (laughs) Well,
2: and not just that he was bigger, which was clear as soon as they got in the cage together uh, and the range was giving Benson Henderson problems all night. But. Koroskov looked pretty damn good.
1: Yes, he did. That's one of the reasons why I said, this is a man who deserves to have us attempt to pronounce his name correctly. And in fairness, I recall a certain handsome
2: man on the podcast last week pointing out that this was a tough fight for Benson Henderson and that could very easily go against him. But I did not see it being as one-sided as it ended up being. I thought that, you know, he would probably... Have a little bit of trouble on the feet, but maybe eventually get it down there and then win it on the mat. But, man, he was beaten in pretty much every aspect of this fight and tried, to his credit, tried a lot of different things to try to get this somewhere where he could win the fight and where he had a better chance, and nothing he did worked. He took a beat down and kept coming, you know, survived the full five rounds when a lot of guys would have been knocked out a couple different
1: points there. But rough, rough night of work for Benson Henderson. It sure was. And, you know, Benson Henderson is a guy who has basically fought everyone, a who's who in the lightweight and welterweight division. And I think, you know, as they pointed out on the broadcast, yeah, he got knocked out by Rafael Dos Anjos, uh, you know, back in 2014. But it was hard to recall a time in the career of Benson Henderson where he just got whooped for 25 straight minutes to the extent that Korshkov was able to to do that. And that was impressive from the Bellator welterweight champion. His only career loss at this point came kind of early in his Bellator career to Ben Askren. Uh, and it seems like he might be a capital G guy yeah. at, at welterweight. And he's one of those guys where when you tune in to watch the Bellator product, you realize if this guy was fighting in a different venue, we we might all know how to say his name for starters and and, you know, consider him to be, a real up and comer at that weight class.
2: You know, it put a couple things in perspective for me. One was I, I was I saw Tim Kennedy on Twitter uh today pointing out how many of the champions in the UFC's marquee divisions now are former strike force champions, uh who you know, about whom we sometimes did not give them their full credit when they were in Strike Force. Uh, and it was always, we do fall into a trap sometimes of thinking, well, we'd have to see how he does against UFC guys. Like, as if that's the only way to determine who's pretty good. And that's something to think about with guys like Andre Koroshkov. But also something to think about kind of along those same lines is, do you remember who, who is the one on Andre Koroshkov's record?
1: Yes, I just said it. Ben Askren. That's when right. I was talking the last time. Thank you. Thank you for <laughs> listening. I mean, this, it seems like maybe when all said and done,
2: this is the best shot Ben Askren has to be remembered as a top welterweight, is if he beats guys who then later go on to beat enough guys to put it all in perspective for us, right? Otherwise, right now it seems like he's probably just going to live out his days over in 1FC doing whatever it is they do over there and... He'll never really get that chance to go out there and earn that respect in the UFC uh, and put it all all the doubts to rest. And so instead, maybe it ends up Andre Koroshkov beats a bunch of really good dudes where we know what to think of them. And then we all remember, oh, that's right. Ben Askin totally schooled that guy.
1: Soccer kicks.
2: That's I, what they do. I, that's that's right. Do. That's it.
1: That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it you can go to the website comainevent.com and click the link at the top of the page that says email the podcast that'll get you in touch with us while you're there you can sign up for the co-main event podcast breakfast of champions newsletter that comes out every friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss from tuesday through friday when we're not recording the podcast and believe you me stuff does happen so we think you'll like it it's short it's humorous and if you don't like it It's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, we could probably do a whole show talking about Conor McGregor and what is going on between him and the UFC fight company bosses at this point, but we're going to have to distill our thoughts down into uh, somewhat less than that because lo- lots of topics demand our attention on this week's show.
2: And it will just be irrelevant as soon as it posts. So another may-
1: another solid point. Suffice to say, because everyone already knows and because it will be irrelevant, no real reason, I guess, to give a full recounting of what has occurred except to say as we record this, the last thing, the last important thing to have happen was Conor McGregor tweeted that he was back on the UFC 200 fight card. Uh, and that claim has been refuted by the people at the, uh, at the UFC who make those decisions. Uh, I'm gonna bring my own shit to this discussion, obviously. My own expectations, I guess you can say. As we always do. Uh, and I think I guess I would just begin by saying I think Conor McGregor is right in all of his protestations throughout this uh short saga with the UFC so far. But I think that he is benefiting from a situation where the only entity to come off worse than him is the UFC here. Because uh I haven't been that impressed with Conor McGregor so far. During this mini holdout, I guess you could say, I know that he has uh largely gotten a pass from the m m a media and it seems like he has a certain amount of support from fans and indeed, as I said, I also think he's right uh but I don't think he's handled this particularly well and and why not what? in total it's it kind of makes me think that he is not as media savvy or as good at this stuff as I assumed he was
2: what's your beef? What do you think he handled incorrectly?
1: Well, the statement was not good that he released on Facebook, really? even though everyone in the media lined up to say that it was amazing. Uh It was heartfelt and genuine, which I think were the good things about it. It was also rambling and misspelled and written in a style that made it appear like a verse when you looked at it on the page. And there was a fair amount of misogyny in there. So I would say uh, maybe you should have had someone proofread that to put it in some order. And, I mean, uh, he
2: misspelled Connecticut and he he could have left out the stuff about the, the hypothetical yeah. news. Anchors. So with 24
1: hours to come up with that, not good. <laughs> uh, although, you know, I appear to be in the minority with the thinking of that. We're all kind of drinking from the McGregor trough at this point. Uh, it seems like he's overplayed his hand a little bit here toward the end with this last tweet saying that uh, he's back on the card. Like that seems like a huge mistake to me because if you tweet that, it, it, I guess it gets you some publicity, but it also puts the ball fairly squarely back in the UFC's court. Like, if you don't now make the UFC 200 main card, it just, it just sends a signal where all the power lies here. By I saying mean, that you're back on it and then you don't show up, uh, that shows you who's making the decisions here. Kind of well, undercuts your own power, if but you ask that me. That doesn't,
2: I don't, I don't see that as an issue. I think once you're, once you're in this fight, you're in it. I don't think which that- is a,
1: the the umbrella problem, by the way. That <laughs> Conor McGregor is picking a really weird hill to die on here. Like this is not. I mean, and again, when I said at the top of the round that I was going to bring my own shit to this conversation, it's a lot of shit here. Uh you know, when he first posts that uh, retirement announcement on Twitter, which seemed for all the world like a joke. uh at first I thought he was he was just kind of trolling us, but then as the you know the hours stretched on where everyone said it, it it had to be taken seriously and and that he was serious about it uh i guess i got my expectations were raised and i thought you know what if we're ever going to have a conversation an honest conversation and a meaningful one about fighter pay now's the time before ufc 200 before this fight and this guy with all the charisma in the world who is Maybe the only guy, the first guy we've ever seen come along in this sport who has the power and the savvy to be a legitimate uh, agent for meaningful change. Like, it's, it's time to do it. The time is now. And then I was disappointed, frankly, to see that his actual gripe, at least as he wants to air it in public, which I still don't know that I'm totally buying, uh, is that he, he's done too much media. And at this point, just wants to focus on the fighting. Because that's a conversation we've had a million times before.
2: Are you, Is this all your shit? Is all your shit now laid out on the table? My shit is now laid out on the table. Because there's a lot of it to sort through here. Counterpoint to Chad's shit. I agree with you that it seems like a weird hill to die on. And I still think that this is not really a conversation about that. It's a conversation about control and power right. and where it lies between the fighter and the promoter. Particularly after you
1: watch the UFC 200 press conference. You're like... Well that was completely irrelevant. Right. It didn't matter at all if he was there. Um and I I think though
2: that there it, it's once he explains his thinking behind it it makes a little more sense that this would be the flashpoint. Especially the line that struck me about his Facebook statement was I am not yet paid to promote. And this is not necessarily a new gripe. We've heard this before. This is the shit that Roger Huerta got in trouble for a long time ago, like back in like 2008 or nine, right? Right. was pointing out how the UFC will tell you, you know what? We're sending you on this media tour. You're going to go out there. You're going to sit through all these interviews, drum up all this press, um, and we'll give you the 50 or 75 bucks or whatever it is a day per diem basically to eat on. Like you're going out there and doing work for the UFC. You're not getting paid for that work. The pay is, promised later. The pay is like, "Well, you you do this work for us and it'll it'll trickle down to you later on." You know, you'll be promoting the UFC, which will in turn be paying you. And fighters have subscribed to that thinking for a long time in a lot of different ways, and we have criticized those fighters for just saying like, "All right, I'll just do whatever the UFC wants and hope that money shows up in my hand somehow at the end of it all," which is not a reliable way to go about that. And I think that Conor McGregor might be the only guy who has the power that can actually make a stand on an issue like that and say, look, you can't just book me for endless press appearances over and over and over again. I mean, weren't we just making fun of the CNBC thing where he was on with Nate Diaz and we were saying it and the CNBC host all but said it. Everybody was just looking at it going, why is this happening? Why this one too? Isn't there enough stuff out there? And so for the USC to just kind of say, like, all right, you are going to be part of our saturation bombing campaign across all media outlets, and you know what, you're training and all you have to do for the actual fight, you figure that out on your own whenever you can, I can see making a legitimate gripe about that. And for him to say, like, all right, look, why do we need to do all these press conferences? I'll fly to New York, we'll do one press conference, then I'll get on a plane and go home so I don't have to come halfway around the world. Uh, and just keep saying the same things at the same stops. And we all know how it's going to go. It's the same shit that was in the world tour with with Jose Aldo, where you get tired of it by the end. Like, I think that even if you accept the argument that, hey, you have to promote your fight, that's part of the job, everybody has to do it, there surely must be some line, even if you don't think we've reached it yet, there must be a line in existence where you say, here's where it's too much, and it's not reasonable anymore. And so to be able to have that argument, It seems like the the problem is the UFC does not even want to acknowledge that that line might exist. For the UFC.
1: Surprise, surprise.
2: The amount of media you do is the amount of media we say you do. And you you hear you have the first fighter, or not the first fighter, but the first really prominent fighter saying that his answer to uh, the question uh, or the demand to jump is not going to be how high. And look what it's turned into. It's turned into this big thing with the UFC yanking him off the card. The thing that seems the weirdest to me is there was that moment during this press conference where Ariel Hawani gets up there after, you know, and Dana White, his confusion that everybody wants to talk about this, like, oh, why would everybody want to talk about the biggest story to happen in weeks? Uh, and, you know, seems kind of frustrated. Everybody keeps bringing it up. And Ariel Hawani gets up there and says, Nate Diaz says he wants to fight, says he's not fighting if he doesn't fight Conor McGregor. The fans seem like they want the fight. Conor McGregor says he wants to fight. Why don't you make the fight? And his answer... You're,
1: did you hear what his answer was during that uh n- not not no huh
2: next question that was really? his answer
1: wow i didn't i followed, which, I followed this on Twitter, but I didn't actually watch the entire press conference.
2: It highlights what you love to say about press conferences and why they're bullshit, which is like they're ostensibly we're here before you to answer questions and lay all our stuff out there, except for when the narrative starts going in a way that we don't want, and then we're just gonna shut it down. Uh, and see, I think that's where the UFC comes out looking poorly in this, this whole situation is if you ask them like, all right, why don't you just make this fight now? There's plenty of time, There's plenty of time to change the lineup now and say, okay, Conor McGregor, Nate Diaz back on problem solved. The only reason not to do it is because you feel like Conor McGregor would win. Right. Like you'd be letting him win. You'd be letting him have one over you. And that's where it just becomes about dumb egos.
1: Yeah, and like I said, uh number 1, I think he's right in all of his contentions because he does do a lot more media than probably almost anyone else on this card. Uh, and it probably does distract him from his training. And I think coming off his first loss in the octagon, it's totally understandable why he might want to recenter himself and and rededicate himself to to training uh because he probably acutely understands that his marketability uh depends on him winning this next opportunity against Nate Diaz. And the, you know, the reason that I would, that I am suspicious that the, this whole media appearances thing is not really what we're talking about here. Like you said, after you watch that press conference. You come away from it feeling like, well, it just didn't matter at all that Conor McGregor wasn't there. And I think I put a joke on Twitter where I was like, too bad Conor McGregor couldn't make it to the UFC 200 press conference. Now nobody will be able to write stories about him before UFC 200 <laughs> because it just reinforces the ridiculous nature of those press conferences that people are going to write more stories about Conor McGregor now uh, than anyone else who was at that press conference. And it and it's just it has no effect whatsoever. That he didn't sit there for, for an hour uh, and, and you know, answer all the questions and do well, it has his normal, no effect on normal the news trumpeting cycle. stuff.
2: It has an effect on him not
1: going to do it. And I think that that's... Sure. It has no, well, it has no effect on the desired outcome, on the UFC's desired outcome. Like, you're not going to lose any pay-per-view buys because Conor McGregor didn't show up for this press conference. You're going to lose pay-per-view buys because he's not on the card. Right. So I think he's he's in the right. I would just say I don't think that he has handled this situation with the aplomb that I would expect from him. Frankly,
2: well, and maybe that goes back to that you don't have to handle the situation perfectly; you just have to handle it better than whoever you're up against. And he is
1: certainly doing that. Fortunately for him, uh, where do you think this winds up, man? Are we gonna do we see Conor McGregor? I, I think that I would be surprised at this point if he winds up on UFC 200. It seems like the window is closed on that. But uh, where do we see him next? I, I guess. don't. I don't
2: think the window is closed on that. It's you know we're in late April. That fights in July. I think. If you force me to guess today, I say Conor McGregor still ends up on UFC 200.
1: If the UFC was dug in before, though, at this point, like if you put him on this card, he has won even more detrimentally than if you just would have folded in the first place, right? Yeah, but I mean, I guess you you can figure out a way to spin it.
2: Well, uh, yeah, you can always figure out a way to spin it and nobody will really care that much long term how you spin this one as long as they get what they feel like they want. Which, by the way, I know the conspiracy theorists would love to point out, hey, remember when people weren't that excited about an immediate rematch between Conor Greger and Nate Diaz for UFC 200? This is a way to get people absolutely clamoring for that fight at UFC 200. But if they're dug in, I think if there's anything we've learned following the UFC over the years, it's that money is the best shovel for the UFC. You want to dig them out of that entrance position point out that they'll make a whole lot more money with Conor McGregor on that card than they will with him off that card, which is the absolute truth right now. So uh, I think that that eventually wins out here and he ends up on UFC 200.
1: Ariel Helwani, who has been doing incredible work since parting ways with Fox Sports, by the way, uh, had what I thought was maybe the best out for the UFC that I think he put on on Twitter uh, earlier, either today or yesterday, and that was the UFC should just come out and say that Nate Diaz deserves it. And so they got yeah, they to make go. the fight for Nate, which I thought...
2: But now, since it's Ariel like... was the one to suggest it, now they can't use it because then Ariel wins. Right. Maybe
1: this is the problem of just like making too many enemies anywhere you go. It's, it's weird that there's a... There's one common denominator in all these situations, too. <laughs> all right, well, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, and then we'll move on to round number two. Uh, ben, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me is related, so I'll just go ahead and say it. This week, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me has to go out to the UFC for dragging that goddamn empty chair out onto the stage at the UFC 200 press conference. I assume just so people could take pictures of it. And put it on their websites as if, like, here's the empty chair where Conor McGregor was supposed to be. I can't, I honestly can't decide if this move from a PR, PR standpoint was diabolical or just the lamest fucking thing in the world. As if to say, oh, we, we tried everything we could to get him to come, guys. Look, we brought this chair out for him and everything. So, I guess UFC, are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me?
2: Which well, Chad, my, are you fucking kidding me? This week, did you see that Conor McGregor's teammate, Paddy Holohan, announced his retirement, kind of against his will, it seemed. I
1: did. I saw a bunch of tweets that made it seem like Paddy Holohan had died, and then I had to scroll back to find out that he had retired.
2: Maybe in a way he did die, Chad. Maybe in a way. Maybe in a way, because you see, Paddy Holohan has a a problem with his blood uh, called. A, the Blood Factor 13, which I know will sound familiar to you, Chad, because you were the drummer in a band called Blood Factor 5 uh, back in the days in, in grad school, also shut down for health reasons or a, health code reasons, health I believe. Reasons, it was yeah. deemed a violation of the health code for you guys to perform.
1: That's right, for just being too awesome.
2: Yeah, well, for something. Uh
1: Too many he, panties. There's panties lying all over the place. He was
2: forced into retirement when... His blood condition became known, and the UFC and other promoters won't let him fight anymore. Uh, the UFC put said that medical officials had said that he should retire. He had said that he had intentionally hidden his medical condition, his blood condition, from promoters because he knew they wouldn't let him fight if he had it. And it's a condition that makes it difficult for his blood to clot pro- properly. Oh, yeah, that, that seems bad when for he gets, that particular line of work. When he gets cut open, he, got, he could just keep bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. My Are You Fucking Kidding Me goes out to Patty Holohan, who proved he really did want to be a fucking fighter. That guy, knowing he had a rare blood condition that would make this already incredibly dangerous line of work more dangerous for him, intentionally hid that from people so that he could do this. Are you fucking kidding me? That's a dude who really wants to fight, man. Are you fucking kidding me? When the when we tell the UFC, you know what, you have to pay these guys more money. You can't get away with paying this guy such little money. And then you look at a guy like that who will hide his own potentially deadly, dangerous blood condition just so he can go in and do it. You're reminded maybe they don't have to pay him that much. So some dudes
1: really, really want to do this. That's going to do it for round number one. Sir Nigel Longstock is here. We're going to play a little Master Tweet Theater. That starts right now.
2: What's that time again? We welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir
0: Nigel, it's been a while. Good day to you, sir. I am returned like Odysseus. To kill us all? Yes. All of you suitors hanging out with my wife while I'm hanging out with another lady who turns me into a pig. I don't remember it very well.
2: That's actually not too far off, to be Mm. honest with you. Uh, We were beginning to think
0: maybe you would never come back yes i was beginning to think so too but then i passed by a rendering plant and i thought of you smell is very powerful i'm joking that you smell
2: that's a good one that's a good one uh, so i guess that concludes the portion of the show where we're glad to have sir nigel back uh let's get a, uh, get going with the other part where you do the thing with the tweets is uh, there a theme this week
0: there is sir the theme is up to the minute up to the month tweets from various times In the last month.
2: (laughs) So, just so I understand, the theme is, these are tweets that happened in the somewhat recent past that you saw. Correct, sir.
0: Even when Sir Nigel is not on the show, he is still doing work periodically copying and pasting tweets using scissors and paper. Well, I
2: look forward to this.
0: Yes, let us begin. This episode of Master Tweet Theater is sponsored by ReleaseMyFamily.com. Are you tired of watching coerced video messages from your missing family? Want to talk to your wife on the phone without police and negotiators horning in? Sign up for ReleaseMyFamily.com, pay your initiation fee, and start enjoying meals with your remaining children again. Still have a family? Enter your street address and sign up for a free trial. ReleaseMyFamily.com. Powered by Wad Dog. (laughs) I
2: knew Wad Dog was going to be involved in this. It just had a Wad Dog fingerprint all over it.
0: They've got their fingers in a lot of pies, sir. One fewer once you sign up for ReleaseMyFamily.com now. (laughs) Just get on with it. Mm -mm, Yes. Tweet the first. Currently on at United Flight, and never in my life have I encountered such rude, unwilling, sarcastic, and inconsiderate flight attendant in my life. Hashtag retweet.
2: <laughs> wow. That is an angry airline consumer, Chad. You got any, any thoughts on that? Could have been at any time in the past month, apparently. Yeah,
1: so someone who's been exploring the wilds of air traffic during the last month, Uh, I'm going to go outside the box here and go with, uh, Andre Feely.
2: Wow, that is outside the box. I'm going to go, even though I feel this can't possibly be right, but I recall seeing him angry about an experience on an airline recently. Former Strikeforce Showtime commentator and now pro wrestling commentator, Moro Ranallo. Oh, interesting.
0: Yeah, both fine guesses, both far outside the box, and both wrong. It is Jessica I. See, I was thinking about doing Jessica I there, but then I didn't think that it
1: seemed uh, misspelled enough, yeah, or the, like the, it seemed too coherent.
2: the The English seemed too much on point yeah. for Jessica I. There yeah. is the word sarcastic, sir. Well, okay, See, uh, but subtle. Nor-
1: normally, if you're going to go Jessica I, you have to at least consider that it's Vanderlay Silva. <laughs> yeah, that's what leads you to. The path of guessing, Jessica I.
2: That is the rule. If you start at Vanderlei Silva, consider backing up to Jessica I.
0: I'm alarmed that you two have begun teaching to the test, sir. <laughs> <clears> Treat the second. Montreal has some cool elevators. Video self riding in an elevator. Oh. Sage Northcutt.
1: Yeah. That has to be super Sage Northcutt.
0: It uh, is. It is Sage Northcutt, and I believe he is on to us.
2: Yeah, it's starting to seem that way. I was really fighting that perception, especially after the Alexander Graham Bell fax (laughs) next to the payphone. But now it seems like Sage has just given the people what they want.
1: I would like to go on record saying that I was on to Sage Northcutt being on to us from the beginning.
0: Oh, God. Hmm. Before it was cool to see through Sage Northcutt's behavior. Hmm. Tweet the third. At Marty Wall. At... BJJ GB72, I will read a book. Indicate me a good one. Not those that you like to read. Twilight, Fifty Shades of Grey, Laughing Until Tears Emoji, Laughing Until Tears Emoji, <laughs> Laughing Until Tears Emoji. Oh,
2: No reason, I'm just going to say Travis Brown.
1: Indicate me a good one?
2: That's right. You know, like, you know, where you're like, man, I want to go see a movie today, but there's nothing out that I really want to see. Somebody indicate me a good movie. You know, people say it all the time.
1: Uh, in
0: Czechoslovakia. Eddie Bravo. Hmm, both fine guesses, both likely to conjugate the verb indicar, both wrong, it is Henzo Gracie. Oh, okay, well.
2: All right. I guess Henzo got us there.
0: Soon to be an undercover DEA agent. Hello, friends. Indicate me where I might buy some cocaine. (laughs) Also, Eddie Bravo. Dude, I don't know if you've heard his stances on
2: chemtrails and shit, but Eddie Bravo has some books he would like to indicate to you.
0: (laughs) None of them good, sir. Tweet the fourth. Here is yet another interview. Listen if you want, but if it takes you away of doing something more... (laughs)
2: Wait, am I to understand that this is somebody linking to an interview of themselves and suggesting that if you have anything else at all to do, you should do that instead? Listen to it, but don't ignore obligations to your job or family. So it's somebody who's a master of hype, is what we know.
0: Yes, yeah.
2: I feel like this is wrong, but I gotta go with my heart and say Gunnar Nelson.
1: That's actually, temperamentally,
0: that's a good guess. Uh... Could this one be Vanderlay Silva? Mm, both fine guesses, both mellow dudes except for Vanderlay and both wrong. It is Dan Beast Seven.
2: Okay, that does work actually.
0: The Beast is back and he would like your attention if you are bored. <laughs> <clears throat> Tweet the fifth. Some nights Jordan scored 60, other nights he would score 20. I'm just going to be grateful and keep winning.
2: To do John Bones Jones, that's who that is.
1: I guess, yeah, sure. I'm gonna follow. You seem confident, so I'll go. I'll follow your lead, John Dwight Jones, Every, Jonathan Dwight Jones.
2: Everybody sees what you're doing here. You don't get that one.
0: That's you, you can't just make up the rules as on, we go. Come on, man. It is J D Bones Jones, and you both <laughs> get it. Some nights Michael Jordan had to spend 18 hours overcoming his cocaine addiction.
2: Suzanne Davis, Journalist of the Year, if you're listening to this one, do not count that one for Chad. Market it zero.
0: No,
1: see. Do you hear me? Mark zero. Sir Nigel, the arbiter of, of Master Tweet Theater, says that
0: I do get that one. Thank you very much.
2: Do the right thing, Suzanne.
0: This episode right is thing. tied at six to six. <clears throat> <laughs>
2: uh, I guess that's it. Is that all you got
1: for us? That was tweet. Well, the fact we ended in controversy. Yeah, give the people a reason to come back
0: next time.
2: What else you got going on, Sir Nigel?
0: You know, it's funny you should ask, Sir. I've just finished wrapping an exciting project about a retired ship's captain and smuggler who winds up in command of the world's most deadly special operations force. I
2: see him. What is it called? It's
0: called Mikhail's Navy SEALs.
2: <laughs> and what role do you play? I
0: play Sir Bin Laden, a misunderstood patriot.
2: Well, everyone's going to love a good McHales and Navy reference. That was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock.
0: Thank you, sir.
2: Which had in the UFC 197 main event, John Jones went out there against Ovince St. Preux, and for five rounds, pretty much dominated him. Uh, but did not rip his head off and throw it into the audience, and therefore, I guess we're all going to feel like this was something of a disappointment. First of all, as you're watching John Jones in this fight, what are you thinking? Did, did
1: it look like the old John Jones to you? Did it look like a little bit of a rusty John Jones? It was a little bit of a strange performance because. The expression on his face when he came out of the, out to the cage, uh, looked like he was so pleased to be back and just like content and happy and ready to go. And then he got in the cage and, and, you know, the performance was fine all the way through. He totally pitched a shutout against a guy that he should pitch a shutout against. So it's hard to really find areas to criticize John Jones, but at the same time, maybe a little bit listless, a little bit lackluster. Maybe there was a little bit of rust there. And the strange part was like at the very beginning, because Jones had seemed so overjoyed to come to the cage. I thought he was doing it on purpose and maybe he was, you know, in the aftermath, some of his coaches said that they wanted him to have a a really deliberate performance. And he certainly turned that in. But like just when the, the fight was a little bit slower paced than we, we thought it might be. I thought to myself, Oh, he's just trying to get some ring time, right? Like he's been out 16 months. He's, he's out there. He doesn't want to just come out and blow OSP out of the water immediately. He's, he's trying to, uh, He's trying to like to get some ring time, and then as the fight wore on, it started to be like, oh wait, maybe something else is going on here. It just doesn't seem like he can pull the trigger in the way that we want him to, which is uh, kind of a weird thing to say because he was out there throwing spinning high kicks yeah. and elbows and whatnot, uh, and it turns out OSP, despite the that he didn't do much in this fight, is is. Tough as hell, I guess you would say. But, like, I guess we all expected John Jones to destroy Oven St. Prue in under a round, and because it went the distance and it was a little bit of a slow-paced fight, I guess it just didn't meet expectations.
2: I think he's always pretty happy when he's walking out to the cage. He did, with this one, you got the sense that there was a, uh, oh, yeah, I remember this feeling kind of moment for him where he was really glad to be back. But he always, he, he seems like he is genuinely enjoying what's about to happen here and not at all awed by the moment. Uh, so that part didn't surprise me so much. I guess it seemed like, well, for one thing, I think we have to be fair and point out that for a lot of this fight, Ovent St. Prue seemed like he was in pure survival mode. He wasn't really trying to take a whole lot of chances himself and really go after John Jones. You know, he hit him with a couple good right hands, but especially later in the fight, possibly because his arm was injured uh, in the later rounds, it seemed like he was just trying to, to make it to the final horn and was going to be really happy with that outcome. Uh, and so th- that gives you an extra barrier if you're the guy trying to chase the other guy down uh, and finish the fight. If he's not coming back with anything and he's just focusing on his defense, it can make it a lot tougher for you. But what surprised me was you know, toward the end of the fourth there where you see John Jones, he gets a takedown on Owen St. Pru and then just kind of mauls him on the mat yeah. Uh until the horn there. The, and I believe in his corner before the last round, uh, Greg Jackson was telling him something along the lines of, all right, let's basically do that again. Let's get this guy down up against the cage and let's finish him. Uh, and he did get Owen St. Pru down, but then kind of – aborted on the the attempt to finish the fight on the the mat, led him back up to the feet and contested it there. And it seemed like, you know, he had some opportunities to finish it there and that if he was rusty, um, you know, he wasn't rusty in any way that's going to make him not the world's best fighter, but so much just that he might have missed a couple of opportunities that he would not would not have missed before. What'd you think of Daniel Cormier's commentary especially when at times he was saying he kind of openly admitted you know what that's why it was tough for me to pull out of this fight was because i thought he might be rusty coming in tonight uh and i you know basically i would have had a best chance to beat him now looking the way he looks and mike goldberg i think stepped in pretty quickly and was like but you'd you want to beat the best john jones there is don't you and he was like oh yeah yeah yeah, of course i do <laughs> uh but like he had kind of admitted there. Yeah, I. That's why I really wanted to stay in this one because I thought John Jones would be the easiest pickings he will ever be right now.
1: Yeah, it's weird to bring Daniel Cormier out only for the main event. I guess it's. Uh, he was
2: on some of the fight right. He was prelims. on the
1: prelims, but then he he had to go freshen up or something during the actual pay per view card and comes back out for the main event. It gave it kind of a pro wrestling feel in a way. Like you expected someone to go through the Spanish announce table at some time just because the two rivals were out. You have one of the rivals out there calling the other guy's fight. You think, you know, some chaos is going to ensue. Uh, it's just weird to watch DC in that role, knowing that he is actively still a fighter and still the light heavyweight champion because he's pretty good at it. And he does a good job like calling the fights and and he's had did a good job on commentary when they do the little uh, stand up. Uh, segment before the actual main event. He just sounded more like a broadcaster for the most part yeah. than, than an actual fighter. Uh, which once again, like made me think, like, d- does DC know he's, he's in his, he's in the last dance stagement, stage of his career here? Like one, one more fight, two more fights against Jones. And is that going to be the end of it? Uh, but I, I thought it was a little bit weird. And for the most part, I, I think he, he played it fairly straight. Uh, it is odd to, to, I guess, acknowledge that <laughs> you wish you would have fought the guy on this night because he seemed a little rusty. But I guess it's just spinning things forward. Is there any concern at this point about John Jones fighting Daniel Cormier, especially if they kind of fast forward it to UFC 200 in early July, which is one of the options on the table at this point? Uh Is there any concern that that he won't be as ready to go as he would need to be?
2: John Jones or yes. Daniel Cormier?
1: John Jones. I wouldn't be worried about John Jones now after he got this
2: ring time in to work. He got 25 minutes in there against Ovin St. Preux, uh to kind of sharpen some of his, his timing and to uh, get the feel back. So now I think he'll be as dangerous as ever when he fights Daniel Cormier. The question would be, is Daniel Cormier going to be rushed into UFC 200, especially with the UFC saying, you know what? We've, we've drawn this line in the sand. Conor McGregor is not going to fight. You need a big headliner for UFC 200. And it seems like Daniel Cormier right now is in the, I still got to talk to my doctor stage, which often is when guys will rush it when they really shouldn't. Um, and rushing it against John Jones could be a nightmare situation for Daniel Cormier, but I, I thought in a lot of ways it was smart. To have Daniel Cormier there and to admit right off the bat, like, hey, if Jon Jones wins tonight, then he and Daniel Cormier will rematch, you know, possibly at UFC 200. Nobody even talking about what will happen if it o- wouldn't say Prue wins, because we all know that that shit ain't going to happen. Uh Basically, just treating this like what it was, which was kind of just a a warm-up for Jon Jones and a chance to to get back the action and and get ready for the real fight coming up with Daniel Cormier, which... I mean, I'd rather the UFC be honest about that situation, which I felt like here was a rare instance where that actually happened, where we didn't have to sit through a whole bunch of, like, Ovent St. Prue is... An incredibly dangerous fighter, ready to shock the world. You, you hear from Owen St. Preux, and he never sounded like he believed he was going to shock the world.
1: No, not if, once. Like I said, uh, if anything, I thought that they would do more with having Daniel Cormier out there, like that he would they would confront each other in in the cage. For uh, I'm not impressed with your performance. Ruin his special night. Ruin his special night. Here's a question about John Jones, though. John Jones has not finished a legitimate light heavyweight opponent since he choked out Lyoto Machida. At UFC 140, uh, in December of 2011. Aside from that, his, his finishes were, uh, his Americana over Vitor Belfort at UFC 152, and then his TKO of Chael Sonnen, uh, at UFC 159. Now, previous to this, like, he had, he is, let's see, one, two, three, four decisions now in a row. Previous to this, I think you could say, well, he's fighting the best light heavyweights in the world, Alexander Gustafson, Glover Tashira, Daniel Cormier. It's not like too many people on earth are finishing any of those guys. Now he has this uh, decision against Ovin St. Prue as well. A guy that, like I said, at the top seemed like someone he should just tear right through. Is there any concern at all that John Jones uh, just isn't the dude that he used to be in terms of uh, just murderizing people and and getting stoppages? Because, you know, you talked about how he took Ovin St. Prue down and mauled him on the mat there. And that, to me is kind of a throwback to old school John Jones to the, to the John Jones that TKO'd Brandon Vera in three minutes and 19 seconds with that vicious elbow that later Brandon Vera showed up on Facebook with his eye looking like an alien and was like, okay, John, you got me this time. <laughs> you got, time. Me. You got, you got me. me this time, but next time, dot, dot, dot.
2: Still waiting for that one. Uh You
1: know, but I don't think he's ever been,
2: he's not that one punch guy. He's not that one shot knockout kind of guy. And there are those guys in a light heavyweight division, but he's really never been one of those guys. Uh, but I think that his best chances for finishes are one, with submissions, uh, and two, with getting guys down and just kind of overwhelming them to the point where you know he, he's beating on them so badly that the rev has to step in there and stop it, which if there had been an extra 30 seconds in round four, that would have happened there. And I guess it's a matter of committing himself to that. Instead, you see a lot of him... Uh, fighting a kind of fight that isn't necessarily gonna lend itself to that. Like uh with Owen St. Preux a lot, he spent a lot of the time on the feet just kind of trying to stifle Owen St. Preux's offense and, and hitting him with the elbows and, and throwing some some spinning kicks and stuff in there, but never really pouring it on a whole bunch of times to try to go in there and get the finish. Never really trying that hard for a submission except for, you know, landing side control and just seeing like let's see if this guy will let me pin his arm down for the Americana. Like, if, if he will, then I'll go ahead and do that. But I'm not going to, like, try to position myself and try to really set up a submission. Or like when you saw him fight uh, Glover Teixeira, and there were a couple moments where he'd start to string together his punches uh, and fought pretty much uh, in close the, the entire time, which is what you would have thought Glover Teixeira would want, um, and never really said, like, all right, let me go all out here and spend everything I have trying to put this guy away because he's clearly winning the fight in, in every other aspect. So I guess it, it doesn't feel like he has to finish and he doesn't, uh, he doesn't as much as he could take the fight into those realms where he could finish.
1: Right. And I wonder why though, just because he rattled off, he starts his UFC career. He has that decision against Stefan Bonner in his first fight. And then uh, if we can just go ahead and count the Matt Hamill fight as a win instead of a I th- loss, I think we can, he rattles off eight finishes in a row. Jake O'Brien, Matt Hamill, Brandon Vera, Vladimir Machushenko, Ryan Bader, uh, Shogun Hua, Quentin Jackson, Lyoto Machida, and then after that, you know, he, he, he decisions Rashad Evans, and then he finishes Bel- Belfort and Sonnen. and, 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 you know, the second half of his career thus far, if you take it back to that Rashad Evans fight, uh, kind of a different style, I guess, which, which I just think is interesting.
2: Yeah, it doesn't worry me that his skills are
1: deteriorating no, at all. It doesn't seem like he's on the downhill slide or anything like that. Uh, anyway, we all assume now John Jones, Daniel Cormier, they're going to do the damn thing. Uh, that so that will be interesting and exciting for the future, and we will keep you up to date when that occurs. As for right now, though, we're going to get started with round number three. Ben, there were about 20 seconds during the Flyweight Championship co-main event at UFC 197 where it seemed like Henry Cejudo might have something for Demetrius Johnson. He uh, initiates a clinch and takes Johnson down with a pretty inside trip takedown. And you think to yourself, hey, wait a second here. If if Olympic wrestler Henry Cejudo can take Demetrius Johnson down and stay on top of him and start working some of it, and that was about how long it lasted. Never mind. Demetrius Johnson kicks him off, stands back up, and, and st- about a minute and a half later, he Demetrius Johnson initiated that position again, the position where he previously got taken down, and just... Fucking obliterated Henry Zahudo, both with knees to the, to the midsection from both sides, knees to the face, a straight left hand, another knee to the midsection that dropped him, and then he finished him with, with strikes on the ground.
2: Had that short elbow in there, that was pretty nice also.
1: Yeah, he did. He, he mixed in that short elbow. That actually might have been the thing that, that started the, the finishing exchange too. Uh, holy hell, dude. If Demetrius Johnson is just gonna fucking fly through John Dodson and, uh, Horiguchi, and now, Olympic gold medalist wrestler Chris Cariasso, or i mean, I'm sorry, uh, Chris Carriasso, not an Olympic gold medalist yet. Yet, Henry Cejudo at UFC 197. Uh, it seems like a given that this man will break Anderson Silva's streak of uh, uh, successive, successive, consecutive title defenses. And and man, I just—I don't know what you do if you're a 125-pound fighter in the world today
2: become a 135 pound fighter in that the world. That seemed
1: like what Henry Cejudo was planning <laughs> to do. And in fact, let's just say all of the stuff that I saw from Henry Cejudo at the post fight press conference of this he seems like a hell of a guy. Yeah. He really does. Seems like a, uh, well, a guy who has probably had hundreds and hundreds of amateur wrestling matches, frankly, and uh, because he seemed very media savvy, he seemed like a student of the game, a guy who was going to be very honest with you after this loss, and a guy who who is just going to kind of take the idea like, you know, I got humbled in this one, and I'll learn from it, and I'll come back better. However, I did note that he threw in... At the press conference, yeah, I'd like to see Demetrius Johnson fight at 135 yeah. pounds. I'd like to see how good he really is. I'd is, like to see him go up to bantamweight and fight for the title there. I would like to see how good this man is. I see what you're doing, yeah, Henry Cejudo. That's right. I see what you're doing. You're not fooling anybody.
2: It's like you're you're trying to be the center fielder on the high school baseball team and uh, you know the, the, the dude who looks like he's going to get the starting spot ahead of you. And you're just like, I don't know, man. I think this guy should just go straight to the minors. I think this guy should go play pro baseball. Let's find out. Let's has, find out how good he has is. He,
1: has he thought of going out for football this year? I mean, <laughs> with his athleticism, I think he would be a shoe and a quarterback.
2: I think maybe if he meets a nice girl uh, and baseball won't seem so important to him anymore. You know, I think, though, that you, if you're Demetrius Johnson, you're going to get to the point where people are going to start to get mad at you for not going up to 135 pounds. And it's going to be irrational. And it's going to be dumb because this is why we have the weight classes thing, and obviously he has his sights set on the the consecutive title defense record. But I think that the more now that you run out of people to fight, everybody's just going to be like, "Well, come on, man, come on, and go ahead and do it." It's the only thing left to do there now, and I, I don't know how he's going to resist it as time goes by, um, because the you know, we were at the point already before this where the UFC was openly talking about, well screw it, let's just have the reality show be the who gets to fight Demetrius Johnson contest.
1: Right, which seems like 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 a terrific idea, right? After you watch Demetrius Johnson just destroy Henry Cejudo. Like, I'm sure whoever they find on this reality show is is the guy. That's the guy who's going to dethrone Demetrius Johnson.
2: Well, and this is something I've heard from the UFC matchmakers before uh when, you know, I did the story on them for the USA Today uh, special magazine thing that they were putting out and I got to sit down with them for a long time and they brought it up. I think they were talking about either featherweight or bantamweight, but it applies probably even more so to uh flyweight that when they have somebody pull out of a big fight in that one of those weight classes, like a number one contender kind of fight or close to it, the problem they have there is it's not like there's anything to do. It's not like you can go sign another top bantamweight or, in this case, another top flyweight because you have them all. You have pretty much all the top guys in the world at that weight class. There's just no other options. Like who you have is who there is. At this point, uh, the there's just not enough other people in, the, in those weight classes. It's not like some other person that we've never heard of is going to show up and be a real contender for Demetrius Johnson in six months. Like,
1: right. And that's the thing, like being the the champion of this shallow weight class at one hundred and twenty five pounds works both against Demetrius Johnson and works for him, really, because it works against him because. He's just going to run out of people to fight. He's beaten almost everybody in the in the top ten at this point. Luckily, he still has uh Formiga hanging out there at number three on the UFC's official rankings. Who who seems like, you know, by process of elimination, will probably get the call next.
2: And they won't even put that on Fight Pass. Right. That will be like a like a flip book that they distribute to fans on their way into the arena.
1: So it seems like it hurts him because he's going to run out of people to fight, but it also helps him. Because the division is so shallow that it's almost impossible to imagine someone coming into the UFC flyweight division and then getting comfortable enough, having enough fights and, and obtaining the octagon savvy, I guess you might say, to deal with the complete MMA game that Demetrius Johnson brings to the table before they get thrown in there with him. Which might be the case with Henry Cejudo, who came into this fight 10-0. and uh, but was still relatively young in in his UFC career. It's just that he was he was good enough. They didn't have anybody else. Got to fight the champ, man. And and in retrospect, maybe it happens before Cejudo's totally ready.
2: Well, yeah, but I, I mean, I don't know. Cejudo was also not exactly uh, you know a young dude since he'd had that full wrestling career. It was he was reaching that point when sooner or later he was going to have to fight Demetrius Johnson. And by virtue of being somebody, twenty
1: nine years old. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay.
2: Well, I thought he's a little older than that. But okay, fine. Uh, same thing with him though. Like, how many contenders right. do you need him to knock off, uh? And then there's nobody left after him. So I don't know what they do there. I think that uh, you know, bantamweight might soon find itself in the, in a similar situation. You got the dominant Cruz and Uriah Faber rivalry that you can rely on for now. Maybe D- TJ Dillashaw get back in there and take another crack at it. But uh. You might try to impress upon both those guys, hey, you could, you could each use a little help. Why don't you, Dominic Cruz and, and Mighty Mouse do it again? Something like that. At least we can promote it as a champion versus champion super right. fight this time.
1: Uh, you mentioned that they would probably put Formiga versus Demetrius Johnson in a flip book.
2: Or maybe slides. Maybe slides they project onto the side of the arena.
1: Just like one of those old, like the very first camera with that horse running, which was just photos, but the. Just the, twirls
2: around and around. Yeah.
1: Um, did it feel to you like Demetrius Johnson, like they kind of found the right spot to put Demetrius Johnson in during this fight? Because we'd seen him headline some Fox cards. We had seen him headline a, a couple of pay-per-views that were disastrous from a sales standpoint. It doesn't seem like, uh, the, the fans at large are going to embrace him as a 125 pound champion for, for whatever reason. Uh, but this seemed like the right spot for him, man. The co-main event underneath a light heavyweight or heavyweight title fight seemed like the ideal positioning for Demetrius Johnson to go out there and show his wares, really? as far as I was
2: concerned. He's done it before. He's he's been paired with John Jones before and people said the exact opposite thing that all right, when you see these little guys running around the cage for twenty five minutes and then you see the the big guys throwing the bungalows right after that, it really makes them huh. seem less impressive. I think That's th-
1: interesting. Maybe it was just that Demetrius Johnson maybe overperformed expectations and then John Jones underperformed expectations. I think that's what it is. But I thought like if you're going to get a heavyweight fight where you know you might get a stoppage in 61 seconds or whatever throw the flyweights as the co-main where even though Demetrius Johnson has finished what 5 of his last 7 fights or something crazy like that uh you know you're going to get you're going to get that emotional ebb and flow, I guess you would say.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that the thing that helps him is that he went out there and finished in less than three minutes, which is always going to look pretty good for you, Uh, especially when people maybe sometimes have it in the back of their heads when they see you on a fight card that they're going to be in for a few minutes of fighting action here before there's even a hope of a finish. So for him to go out there and just absolutely blitz somebody, we haven't seen a ton of that from Demetrius Johnson, and that's been you know, one of the complaints, so... That always going to work well for you.
1: All right. Well, let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your just saying stuff? Well, you
2: mentioned Conor McGregor tweeting that he was back on UFC 200, and then everybody reaches out to Dana White to say, is this true? And here's what Dana White told TMZ. It's not true. We haven't talked to Conor or his manager since the press conference. I don't know why he would tweet that. And then he adds, all the media keeps asking me that. I feel like the scene in Step Brothers when they ask if they can build the bunk beds. I don't know how many more times I can say the fight is off or how many more press conferences I can have saying the fight is off for people to believe it's off. Now, I'm just saying, Chad, are you familiar with the film Step Brothers?
1: I have not watched Step Brothers.
2: Good, then I can explain the scene to you. Okay. John C. Riley and Will Ferrell are forced to become brothers by marriage when one of them's mom and one of them's dad gets married and they both live at home and it's inappropriate and they're idiots. And they come to their parents and ask them, can we build bunk beds? Uh, And the answer comes back, you don't need our permission to build bunk beds. You're grown men. You can do what you want. And they keep pressing to hear an absolute firm yes, because they're idiots. And this is the main joke throughout the movie. The thing that's funny, the incongruity in this humorous situation, Chad, is that they ask for something, receive a yes, and keep asking, which is usually not what people do. If people, however, were to ask and hear a no, or ask and hear a next question, uh, where you don't really even explain why it's a no, it would be actually be totally normal for them to keep asking. And it would not be incongruous at all, and it would not be humorous at all. And so, therefore, I am just saying that this is the most Dano White comparison ever to not only use a film like Step Brothers, a screwball comedy, to try to make his point about these complex business dealings, but to completely misunderstand the scene in this screwball comedy. I'm just saying.
1: Just saying. Everybody's just saying stuff in that situation. Yeah. Everybody.
2: Let me know if you need me to explain other film
1: other moments Other screwball to you. comedy yeah. set
2: pieces. Wait till we get to meatballs. I think you're really going to enjoy that
1: one. (laughs) Well, Ben, this week, I'm just saying, you know what the scariest thing about John Jones is to me? It's when you see him with his family at ringside right before he goes in and whoops up on Ovin St. Prue, and you realize that John Jones is actually the runt of the litter in the Jones family. I mean, John Jones is terrifying. But then you see him next to his brothers, both of whom are professional football players but whatever. And you realize how lucky all the other MMA fighters in the world are that we got John Jones and not Chandler Jones or Arthur Jones, because those dudes coming from the same gene pool seem way bigger and way scarier. I'm just saying.
2: You think maybe that there's a lot of MMA heavyweights who should be very, very glad that the NFL has not folded and shut down operations. (laughs)
1: Luckily, it doesn't seem that like that's on the verge of happening. Okay. So, uh, the MMA heavyweight is, is safely ensconced. For now. For now. Well, that's going to do it for the co main event podcast this week. We'll be back next week, uh, to look ahead to whatever is happening. Probably we'll have some, some more stuff to talk about with Connor McGregor, too. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are
2: out. How about this? How about if the NFL has kind of an anti-ultimate fighter tournament where it determines the worst
1: oh, okay. defensive lineman and he has to leave so let's, let's, if that's the case, let's not stop at one, let's say the 10 worst, and then we might be in business, then <laughs> we, we have might ourselves. have a, a heavyweight condition, yeah. Yeah.